Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the African Photography Safaris podcast. I'm Alan Hewitt and with me as usual is Khalil Zaib. Individually we are wildlife photographers, safari guides, writers, filmmakers and of course podcasters. But together we are African Photography Safaris. Previous episodes of this podcast are available via our website africanphotographysafaris.com as well as Spotify, Audible Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon too. Khalil, what are we talking about today? I've no idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Our main topics are prime and zoom lenses on safari. Also, anthropomorphism, more specifically naming animals, is it too anthropomorphic? I'm saying that word at the beginning because I know how things are going to go. A few more beers and that's going to be a right mess. I do have to say that was about take four of trying to say anthropomorphism. <laughs> we've only had a couple of beers. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, as usual, we've got uh, some questions and we have a new podcast feature, which is Alan's Amazing Wildlife Wonder. And it's not about his cockapoo, is he? He'll be telling us something unusual or something amazing or pulling apart a well-perpetuated myth like that we're totally sober throughout the recordings of these podcasts. Also, we're not going to do a book review this time, but instead we've got an app to review, the Merlin Bird ID app. An app review. We're absolutely moving with the times now. Last week was AI and this week it's apps. But I have to say, Khalil has done a very, very detailed review, which given the functionality and the depth of the Merlin Bird app, it is very, very much warranted. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, you know me. I love a bit of tech. In fact, do you know that I've replaced myself by AI since the last episode? <coughs> How would you tell? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, apps do have an added interactive functionality over wildlife books. You can record sightings, listen to audio of the animals and build up lists with dates and times. Hey, you sound like a twitcher. <laughs> but as well, as we will discuss, they do include a form of AI, which was sort of discussed quite a bit in the last episode. Um, and the, the AI in the app is about facilitating species recognition via imagery and sound, which is very, very useful. It is, yeah, but I'm not a twitcher, although yeah. I do have a bad case of disco leg when I can't sleep. To be honest, I, I don't use the, the logging functionality of, of the apps, um, but if that's your thing, it can be very useful. Uh, more interested in other technical advances that the app has, like things that, that make IDing birds much, much easier, uh, and more on that later in the episode. Yeah, especially the sound, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, let's kick off with one of today's topics prime or zoom lenses on Safari. So, where do we start here? First of all, let's look at the terminology first to try and clear up any confusion. What is a prime lens and what is a zoom and which one is a telephoto? Now, I often hear people referring to long telephoto lenses as being a zoom. That's which, a zoom, Alan. <laughs> which is, can be correct, but also it's possibly incorrect too. A prime lens will have a fixed focal length and a zoom lens will have a variable focal length. The telephoto bit, that sort of refers to longer focal lengths, basically beyond 80 millimetres as sort of very, very generally speaking. So prime lenses and zoom lenses can be a telephoto. A prime lens cannot be a zoom. It's about fixed versus variable focal lengths rather than the overall focal length itself. Something like a 200 millimetre, 300 millimetre, 400 millimetre, etc. They are prime telephotos. It has a fixed focal length and it doesn't zoom in and out. A lens like a 50 to 140 millimetre, 70 to 200, 
100 to 400, 150 to 600, just to name some of the popular ones across the manufacturers. These are zoom telephotos. Their focal lengths aren't fixed. They allow you to zoom in and out across their range of focal lengths. Now, generally speaking, and the word generally is very, very important here, prime lenses are likely to offer superior image quality. They're optimised for a focal length, so they have fewer moving parts, they have less distortion perhaps, and they can have wider apertures to let more light in. Zoom lenses have to move optical elements around physically, so this can cause a bit of a reduction in quality, perhaps sort of sharpness, increased distortion. They often have narrower or variable apertures too, especially at the longer focal lengths or those lenses that are considered super telephotos. But, you know, it's not 1970, well, well, well before I was born. Um, telephotos, Sadly, <laughs> not before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> telephoto zoom lenses were pretty poor compared to what we see today. Technology and manufacturing improvements, higher quality glass elements and coatings, they've all sort of made zoom lenses significantly better quality now. Now, I have used prime lenses on Safari. I've used the amazing XF 200mm f2 from Fujifilm um, and also the medium format GF 250mm f4, both with and without their respective teleconverters. Now, I know you, Khalil, you've used the um, the Sony 400mm f2.82. Yeah, yeah that, oh, that's a beautiful lens. Very big, but very beautiful. Um, the images that came out were incredibly sharp, full of contrast, lovely background blur. Also, um, when you're using a, a long lens like that that's got an aperture of f2.8, it's like it's letting loads and loads of light in. What that means is that you can not only use it effectively in low light situations, but you can also put a teleconverter on it without hurting its ability to gather light too much. So that's that's really, really useful. For example, I typically used it either as is or with a two times teleconverter. And what that meant with a, with a fairly short period of time, I could convert the lens to an 800 millimeter f 5.6 lens. Now, f 5.6 is still a pretty wide aperture, especially for an 800mm lens, which has a huge reach. The aperture means that the autofocus still works extremely well and you still get bright, contrasty images and the background blur is still very, very pleasing. Unfortunately, I don't actually own that lens, just hired it. They're very expensive and my job as a filmmaker just doesn't justify buying one. I used to have a 600mm f4 prime uh, many years ago, and that was fantastic, if huge. Uh, but I eventually sold it to buy a drone when I moved more into filmmaking. Going back briefly to hiring, I think that's a useful and effective way of taking camera equipment on Safari that you just wouldn't justify having every day. It doesn't have to be one of those enormous lenses. It could be a camera body or a zoom lens that you either can't afford normally, you couldn't justify it, or you want to try it out with a, a view of buying perhaps. Actually, hiring is a great way to test equipment before you commit to buying it. And I did that with my Sony FX9 cinema camera. Uh, it was going to be a really significant purchase. And I, I wanted to really thoroughly check it before I committed to the price. So I hired one to make sure it was for me. And, and it was. It was great. Going back to prime lenses anyway, I have to admit that I much prefer the look of prime lenses over their zoom cousins. Uh, it's a personal preference, but I mean, that goes for filmmaking as well as photography. They're usually better quality, higher contrast, have better background blur and just often have a nicer aesthetic look. I don't know whether it's because they have fewer internal elements to sort of screw things up. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know technically, but 
for me, aesthetically, they just look nicer. To get a similar looking zoom that looks great throughout the whole range, they can cost multiple tens of thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. Like that, that lens I hired, the uh, 400mm f2.8, that was very expensive in its own right. But to get a similar looking zoom that looks great throughout the whole range can cost multiple tens of thousands of pounds, like, you know, more than your average family car. Well, multiples of family car, to be honest. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, not long ago, people were buying three bedroom semi-detached house for the cost of it, um, <laughs> and an 800 millimeter prime F5.6 from one of the big Canon or Nikon boys, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I think I looked <laughs> yeah. up one of those, uh, the, the Canon 50 to 1000 lenses that all the wildlife uh, filmmakers use and there was something like 56,000 quid oh, or something yeah. it's just mental yeah. Uh, yeah can't really justify that not, not, not our budget BBC Natural History Unit fair enough but not, yeah. our, not, not our budget yeah yeah no definitely not not yet anyway <laughs> not yet yeah <laughs> if you're listening BBC Natural History Unit in Bristol uh, you know where we are anyway <laughs> <laughs> That's wishful thinking. <laughs> it's very wishful thinking. Um, prime lens quality, of course, does come at a cost of practicality. Zoom lenses, on the other hand, allow you to change the focal length quickly without having to swap lenses or fiddle about with teleconverters. It's worth noting that most zoom lenses, unless they're very high-end, have a variable aperture across the zoom range. In practice, what that means is that they'll let less light in at the longer end. And it's always the way you're in a dark forest. The animal you want's always too far away, which means you've got to zoom in all the way and there's just not enough light to get a decent shot. The life of a wildlife photographer, to be honest. Yeah, as much as I've enjoyed using those primes that I mentioned, you know, the flawless backgrounds, super fast shutter speeds at the wide apertures, you know, they are great. But, you know... When I think, when I've actually been out there in the field and doing what we do, I've always been glad to have the uh, lens, like the 100 to 400 millimeter zoom lens by my side on a different camera body. Mm. And for me, that 100 to 400 telephoto zoom lens, it's it's sort of, it is the safari lens. Yeah, it's Um, like the classic, isn't it? It is. And when I look back at how many guests that we've taken to Africa, and I, I would I would hazard a guess to say something like eighty five percent of them have had a one hundred to four hundred millimeter lens mm. in their kit bag, and you know when we photograph so many different birds and so many different mammals with such a diversity of their sizes and at different distances. I mean we're talking about birds like ostriches who are bigger than some of the mammals that we photograph. It's yeah. that that level of diversity is an example. You know, I always feel that the top quality telephoto zoom lens has so many advantages in offering that level of versatility. Ethically, you know, we don't want to be constantly moving the vehicle and wildlife can be constantly on the move. You know, I feel the freedom of a zoom lens offers so much more than a prime lens in that respect. And for the last couple of trips that I've done in Africa, uh, Botswana and South Africa, I actually, despite what I've just said, uh, I did leave my 100 to 400 millimeter at home. I did want to take it, but I just couldn't because of other gear that I had to carry. And I instead used my 150, my XF 150 to 600 mil um, Fujifilm lens. And I found that was a lot better for smaller birds, given the focal length. When you're photographing some of these little birds like beaters, you know, no focal length is enough focal length, really. That's that's always the way Um, with the small birds far away, isn't it? Yeah. As long a reach as you can get. Yeah. And there was, you know, we we had that kit lots lots of times with the beaters, the rollers, little um, aquilas and things like that. So in conclusion, yeah, prime lenses, they can offer better overall quality. 
But at the top end of the market of zoom lenses, it is such a smaller quality gap than it has been historically. And for me, the sheer versatility of a zoom lens offers a significant advantage. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I'm with you on the 100-400 lens being the great choice for safaris. Uh, I've used that type of zoom for safaris a lot myself. Um, Actually, more recently, I've got the Sony 200 to 600. That's a again, it's it's one of those variable um, aperture lenses, so 5.6 to 6.3. It's not perfect, but like your 150 to 600, it's so convenient and it has that extra reach at the long end. I'll finish by saying that I'll, I'll always pick a prime lens over a zoom if I can, uh, but for practical reasons, a zoom is so much more convenient. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what what I think I would add to that is that not all zoom lenses are built equally. No. And I think, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot today about the 100 to 400, the 150 to 600, the 200 to 600, the uh, 70 to 200. These are all what we would call three to four times zoom lenses in that the, the widest angle to the telephoto ratio is approximately three or four times. And I think that's the sort of golden number at yeah. the moment. I think once you start getting these kind of 18 to 400 or whatever, and you get a 20 times zoom range, I think that's when you notice a, a significant drop off in quality that it becomes a, a bit of a sort of a jack of all trades and an absolute master of none. Yeah. I, I also think that the price range of the typical sort of 100 to 400 or 150 to 600, that sort of lens is, is not crazy money. Uh, it's a lot of money. Sure. Um, but it, I think in terms of value for money, I think they're very good for what they are. So we do have some questions to the podcast and Vince has asked what is probably the most difficult question that we've received to the podcast. Not that we've received <laughs> that many, but we have received some. Has he, he, has he asked what our favourite beer is? <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite, but I would be pretty sure that beer will be involved in the answer. I think that's almost a bit of a given. Okay, so I'm not required to go off on a beer tangent then. Actually, hang on, let's go for a short beer interlude before we get to the question. Perfect. <laughs> So Vince asks, what is our most favourable moment on safari? And I hate questions like this. Well, I don't hate them. I love questions like this because it gives me a chance to talk. It's just uh, difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. And people ask me this kind of thing all the time. What's your favourite animal to photograph? When you want to do all these talks and things and events throughout the country and things, what's your favourite animal to photograph? And what's your favourite moment? Yeah, it's a difficult question, but we'll, we, we will try and break it down. Where do I start? Uh... So, yeah, I don't think I can answer it, um, but I will. (laughs) There have been so many amazing and unforgettable encounters and moments that I just don't think it's very, very easy just to sort of bang, narrow it down, as simple as that. God, yeah, there's there's so many that stick in my mind, I think, for both of us, you know. I suspect cheetahs might be involved somewhere. Yeah, um, I would say that. Um, That morning with Kasaru, the cheetah, when she was on the termite mound with Mm. her six cubs in the El Choro Conservancy, that was absolutely incredible. We had actually seen her the evening before, 
but it was the the light was dropping quite rapidly as yeah, it does you wasn't know, so good. just on the equator there. Um and that was quite frustrating. So to be able to catch up with her the next morning in that location as the family were up on the termite mound and we were very close to them was just our two vehicles. Um, you know, I, I remember that like that it was yesterday. It was very, very special. Oh, it was so special. Uh, it's funny, actually. I'd seen so many pictures of impossibly cute cheetah cubs from the Maasai Mara in previous years. I'd always wondered where these elusive fluff balls were when we were in Kenya. And lo and behold, we saw Kisaru and her six cubs. I mean, six cubs. Uh, that was just amazing. Yeah, it, it was absolutely epic, wasn't it? I mean, those yeah. were very, very special experiences. Six little honey badger impersonators. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was, of course, an absolute treat for our guests too. Um, incidentally, slight tangent, but on, not really a tangent. Um, it was International Cheetah Day a couple of days ago. Oh, was it? Yeah, and, and I spotted on Facebook uh, that morning uh, one of our previous guests, Mr. George Swift, top bloke, mm. very, very good photographer. Yeah. He'd actually posted a photograph of the moment that we're talking about um, of Kasaru with her cubs on the on the termite mound. Mm. So maybe we can sort of link to that in the podcast page of the website. It's, it's a lovely photograph, of course. Yeah, yeah. So what about that evening as well, um, when one of the Lemek lionesses who had recently given birth, she left a sort of little area where she was given birth and returned to the pride and purely by chance, I think we just happened to be close by as she brought them out onto the savannah. I think we knew whereabouts she was, yeah. but you know we were quite lucky that we got into the specific area. And together, um, her, she, the lioness, with her absolutely tiny cubs, they just walked straight towards and then past us. Yeah, I remember them coming down the, the vehicle tracks and there was one small one that was so tired, she had to actually carry it in her mouth. It was so cute. We're really lucky to see that, actually, because young cubs, the lionesses keep them hidden when they're so, so young. They're literally just a few weeks old so that they're not predated. Yeah, they're very, very vulnerable, as are a lot of very, very young mammals. But there's also a sort of what I think is a fascinating little natural history story tucked away in there too. So I'm going to put my little nerd hat on, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> lionesses. It's a special hat he has. It literally <laughs> yeah. says nerd on yeah, it. It's, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't. <laughs> I guess it says changed. something else on it. Have you had your Sharpie out? I've had my Sharpie out. <laughs> so, lionesses, um, they have this um, behaviour called allosuckling, so the young feed from other feed females as well as their own mother so at face value this sounds like a huge advantage but there's always a twist it also means that neonatal cubs i.e those that are very 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 young just being born they would very easily get muscled out by other cubs amongst the pride so when the lioness gives birth um, she feeds her own cubs for a few weeks, so she disappears to be able to do that, so without the interference from the rest of the pride, until those cubs are old enough to follow the pride and then feed um, effectively uh, alongside the other cubs. Yeah. Actually, I'm just remembering that same female with those little cubs. Uh, th those cubs climbed a tree, which is so cute to trees, tiny little cubs in a, in a tree. You don't often see that, a lion in a tree. Although I did see a full-grown male lion in, in Uganda, which was one of the most incongruous things I've ever seen in the wild. This massive male lion, precariously balanced, looking a bit awkward and kind of embarrassed that we'd spotted him, really. Yeah, wow. Vince, I mean, these are all amazing moments. And I'm sitting here now thinking of many, many more. And we really could go on and on and on. But it, it, it 
difficult to narrow it down to one. It does make me think how absolutely fortunate we have been to have witnessed this sort of thing over the years and been able to photograph it as well. It's something neither of us will ever take for granted. I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking about an incredible experience of photographing five white rhinos together in Timbavati just back in July there. And one of the beautiful things about that is it was totally unexpected. We just kind of drove around the winding tracks, turned a corner, and lo and behold, five white rhinos right in front of us in the middle of the bush fell. Just so oh, it's incredible. I have to say, I've never seen five rhinos in one, in one place at oh, once. It's amazing. Oh, I'm just thinking as well, you know, remember the um, the, the waterhole, I can't remember which, was it on El Choro and, and Uncashu? Yeah, anyway, it's, it's a, it's a so, man-made dam with yeah. a, a sort of a, a bit of a, an embankment to, to hold the water, wasn't it? Yeah, That's I know, right, I know yeah. what you're going to say here. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the backlit lions at the waterhole was just amazing. It had this amazing golden orange rim light. It was absolutely spectacular. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll post that photograph because I do remember it well and I, I sort of remember that your vehicle was very, very well positioned for that moment. I yeah. think we were a slightly different, while you were getting the light behind it, we were getting the light on it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, it, was, it was amazing position and, and very, very different photographs. And it shows, I suppose, how you can sort of manipulate the light from two different angles to get completely different results. And if you look at those photographs at face value, the ones mm. that I took and some of our guests in the vehicle I was with and the ones that you took, and the guests that you were with yeah. would be completely different. You would think they were taken hours apart, but they were actually all taken at the same time. I know. Yeah, actually, we were really lucky with the position, although I, I did ask to manoeuvre the vehicle slightly further round just so that the the rising sun was coming directly behind the lions, and that's where we were lucky. We, we were almost in the right position anyway, um, but getting that light directly behind and through the fur of the lions, that rim light, it was amazing. It was. It was I, I, I can't, uh, I, you know, I was slightly jealous. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Vince's question, we've now started talking about this. We've gone through a couple of bits and pieces each. Mm. We're now going to have to ultimately answer it. So my ultimate favourite moment so far, who knows what's going to happen <laughs> uh, in, in 2024. Um, it's been hard to narrow it down, but I'm going to go for the elephant sunset in oh. the Masai Mara yeah. uh, last year. Absolutely. Yeah, we're both in total agreement about that. That's actually my screensaver and probably the single most incredible moment I've ever had in Africa. I remember it very well. 6th of September 2022. It also sums up how we work together to get into position to experience these things. Yeah, we nearly missed it. Uh, we, I was in James's vehicle um, mm. and we were off photographing some egrets which were feeding on insects being disturbed by a vast buffalo herd. You're doing your bird nerd thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm doing my, my bird. You know, well, you know how much I love sort of photographing species relationships, yeah. you know, a spot of commensalism, which is a relationship between two species where one species derives a benefit from the other without harming or benefiting the latter. Indeed. <laughs> nerd mode. <laughs> nerd, yeah. nerd mode. Off. Can't help it. You take that hat Sorry. off again. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a hell of a lot going on that night. Um, there were lions involved at one point, a lilac-breasted roller, which is a really beautiful coloured bird, is, yeah. uh, baboons, zebras having a dust bath, and then elephants. 
There was this baby elephant we spent a lot of time with, which is just lovely. They're so playful. Alan and I were both in different vehicles, as is usually the case. We take a vehicle each with uh, a number of guests each. I was with Boston, one of our Maasai guides, and we've been chatting about where to have sundowners because it was coming towards the end of the day. Now, sundowners, if you haven't been on one of these trips, are where we chill out and the sun goes down and we drink a beer or some wine or a soft drink. My favourite part of the day. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of the best day. We just do, we either take some photos if it's really nice or sometimes we just sit and drink a beer and chat about the day's amazing experiences. But this, this evening... We could see that it was going to be a beautiful sunset. And there's a place in Lemek, which is one of the conservancies in the Maasai Mara, not far from the camp where the acacia trees look absolutely majestic, silhouetted against the setting sun. And often there are sort of passing wildebeest and other wildlife just walking across the horizon line. However, this time Boston had something else on his mind. Uh, Instead of heading to the acacias, he stepped on the accelerator and off we went on a Ferrari safari over the brow of a rise and down the other side he'd spotted that the elephants we'd been spending time with were heading for that ridge. And that meant only one thing, elephant sunset. Boy, did it not disappoint. As Boston positioned us downhill, the elephants wandered up the ridge directly into the path of the setting sun and were silhouetted against the most incredible red, orange and yellow sky right in front of the orb of the setting sun. I remember I set one of my film cameras running on the back of the seat of the vehicle and we all jumped out to watch and photograph the spectacle, beers in hand. And then you and your guests arrived, Ferrari Safari style, in James's vehicle to join in. In my head, I've got you jumping out of the vehicle and commando rolling, camera in hand. Yeah. Uh, sadly, it wasn't that impressive, but you were out of that vehicle like a shot in one fluid move. Yeah, you've made that sound a lot more dramatic than it actually was. But yeah, we could, we could see it happening. Um, and I wanted to be out sort of helping our guests get set up um i don't think we'd actually come to a halt though as i sort of jumped out the side of the vehicle and i was absolutely sprinting on the hoof i think james was still driving as i ran past him and he looked sort of sideways and i looked at him and we had both had a bit of a sort of what the moment we've put a still image of that video that i took from that evening on the podcast page Uh, have a look it was truly the most memorable experience of all the years we've been to africa running photo trips it was it was amazing it was just the ambience of it all and it was the last night of the uh the safari that we're doing with our guests that was their last evening in masai mara which kind of has a very sort of uh just a, a wonderful feel to it yeah just standing on the savannah with a cold beer in hand, chatting and helping our lovely guests on that trip, marvelling at what we'd just witnessed, a special moment for sure. Yeah, so <laughs> I think I told you it would involve beer. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it, Vince. Thank you for an excellent question, which has helped us uh, relive some wonderful moments. Our favourite safari moment uh, so far and it involved beer, incidentally. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Don't even ask him twice. <laughs> oh, amazing. Beer porn. Incidentally, what is your favourite beer? And, uh, you know, when we're on safari. Oh, dear me. Uh, let's have a think. Um, in Kenya, uh, it has to be Tusker, but I would be specific and say Tusker malt. Mm. Um, however, in South Africa, uh, now this is a really strange one, so bear with me, Carling Black <laughs> Label. What? Yeah, uh, I'm sure that revelation will have people struggling why a beer connoisseur such as myself would opt for Carling Black Label. But in South Africa, it is a very, very different beer to the the sort of dish water that we get served up here in the UK. But yeah, I do like a Tusker malt. 
Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, they do amazing adverts, but the beer is uh, pretty average. But uh, they did do amazing adverts. <laughs> but yeah, South Africa calling black labels is very, very good. Mm. Well, yeah, definitely in Kenya, the, the Tuscan malt for me. I'm not really a lager man, so you know, I prefer IPAs and bitters and so on. Um, but Tusca does taste amazing when you're out there on the, a wildlife safari, and the malt is the better of the two. I'm also going to give, uh, this is going to sound strange, it's not very uh, alcoholic, but it's not alcoholic at all. Um, it's Stoney's, or Stoney, Tangaweezy, and yeah. I had no idea how to pronounce this until I I'm actually looked it up. Uh, but yeah, uh, right. it's not alcoholic, but it's a great tasting African ginger beer, and it really is lovely. It is, yeah, it's very good, very good. Haley asks about cameras. I've read so much about taking two cameras on safari. Is this really necessary? It isn't absolutely necessary at all, but, you know, if it's a good idea if it's possible. It can get very dusty when you're out and about, and the last thing you want to be doing is changing lenses in very, very dusty conditions over and over again. You're also more likely to miss out on opportunities if you're spending time changing lenses. You know, this year, my preferred setup was my Fujifilm X-H2S, phenomenal camera, with the uh, XF 150-600mm, to but I also took rather a lot of photographs with my second camera body, which had the uh, XF 50-140mm to attached to it. Also, trips like this, you know, they're once-in-a-lifetime opportunities for many photographers, and unfortunately, cameras do break, uh, and often at the most inconvenient of times. If you build in a second camera to your overall kit, it's very reassuring to have that fallback option. Again, this is where maybe hiring a second camera or a lens is a good option. Alan and I have both had experiences of being on trips where someone's camera gears failed or they've lost one of the battery charges or something like that. Something that's like the critical in the chain of the whole thing that stops them taking photos. It's the weakest, weakest link, isn't it, yeah. sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, so I'm definitely one for redundancy, not losing my job, but redundancy in that you always take an extra bit of equipment, which is redundant up until the point that you actually need it and that your main kit fails, and then it allows you to continue taking photos. Yeah, I mean, out in places like the Masai Mara, if your camera develops a serious fault, then it's it's game over yeah. um, as far as photography goes. South Africa can have a couple more options, maybe, but there's a little bit more infrastructure in some places. But, you know, it's, it's, it's best to think and plan ahead against this kind of thing happening. Um, on hiring a second camera body, just incidentally, um, I often advise people to take the same camera body as, as they use for their main camera body. Uh, that way you can set them up identically and it saves having to take different batteries and, and different chargers too because remember, every single gram in that camera bag is absolutely precious. Another question to the podcast, Kai has asked if we do editing or processing tutorial sessions while we're out uh, on Safari. The quick answer is yes, but we found that doing it kind of informally in between Safari drives is a better approach than formal sessions. Not everybody wants to sit down at the same time and some people just want to have a beer and chill or even have a nap between Safari drives. People often use different software and might have different learning requests. So what we do is if guests want a particular 
thing to be explained to them in terms of editing. We'll maybe take two or three guests at a time, or we'll just one or, or whatever, or sometimes none. You know, it's it's whatever's appropriate. We like to be very flexible and, and read the group and, and really deliver what people want. The last thing that sometimes you want is just like some massive group session where it's just us talking boringly at the front and, you know, everybody else is listening. It's like, it's just more informal than that. Yeah, absolutely. So Peter from Cardiff in Wales has asked about anthropomorphism. We also mentioned in the last couple of episodes that we would talk about anthropomorphism at some point. Easy for you to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I did say it very, very slowly. Um, So what is it? Well, it's the attribution of human traits, emotions or intentions to non-human entities, uh, including animals. It's it's a common way for humans to try to relate or to make sense of the unfamiliar. Why is it a problematic issue? If we misinterpret behaviour with our own values, it can lead to ethical and sort of safety issues. It can also bias conservation research, which needs scientific understanding of species and ecology and not our human thoughts and our human perspective. So it's a massive subject. It's not something we can really do justice to in one podcast episode mm. what we are going to talk about is the concept of, of naming animals so peter asked is this a, an anthropomorphic habit and in previous episodes and this one too we've mentioned kasaru the cheetah yeah and mm. um, we've also talked in the past about nueti a leopard which translated from shangan i believe means moon and i've also mentioned karula shidulu hosanna jongile all leopards that i've actually photographed in the greater kruger and um, whether it be tim Bavati or savi sands or something like that now in the mara we've photographed the uh what i've just mentioned cheetahs kasaru but we've also photographed Kasaru's mother, Amani, and another cheetah last year called Rasasi, uh, which is a Swahili word for bullet, related to the fact that she was so, so quick. Now, we photographed male lions, Lishan, Red, Tattoo, Topknot, Derry, Barakoi, and so many more. And we refer to these animals, as you've probably guessed by now, by the name. These are the names that are the given by conservation groups and local guides and rangers and things like that. And Peter's asked, he's picked up on this, and is that not a very anthropomorphic habit? And it's a good question. Um, ultimately, yes, it is. Um, the practice is often criticised by some as being anthropomorphic. After all, giving a wild animal a name is the, ultimately, it's the attribution of a human characteristic. But, you know, naming wild animals can have uh, advantages as well as disadvantages. To study a group of animals, especially predators, they have to be individually identifiable. And this means they have to have some sort of designation. You can't survey something if you haven't got a census. You, haven't, you can't survey something if you can't identify animals from, from one to another. We could call a certain cheetah something like FC3OC, which could perhaps stand for <laughs> female cheetah 3 who frequents the Old Choro Conservancy for example. I just, I just made that up, by the way, but, but we could just call her Kasaru, you know? <laughs> I hope you just made it. Oh, it sounds like it could be in Star Wars, <laughs> FC3OC. <laughs> yeah. yeah Moisture it, farmers or something. But, but doesn't <laughs> FC3OC sound very, very cold? Yeah. Yeah? I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, 
perhaps that's anthropomorphic, yeah. But, you know, scientists, conservationists, rangers, guides, you know, we are all people. So we, we notice the difference between the animals that we study and the animals that we photograph and the animals that we observe um, and the features which define their individuality, their markings, their scars, their habits. This often gives them their name. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking actually, you know, remember the lion from the Lemek Pride called Shonko? Yes. Which translated yeah. into one eye. And indeed, yeah. he only had one eye after Did. a fight. Shonko and Kongu. Yeah. 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 So it was easy, easy, easy to ID him. It was. Over time, over years, this habit of, of naming an animal, it, it, it creates a bond. Um, and we care about them as keystone species. Remember, as naturalists and conservationists, this is what puts us in, in the situation where we work to start with. In places like the Masai Mara, where local communities live, work and farm amongst these animals, wildlife and human conflict and sort of coexistence is, is a major, major issue and a primary conservation threat too. Now, there is evidence to suggest that naming an animal increases attachment and empathy, which in turn helps people appreciate and realise that they, these animals do have an intrinsic value towards the community. And this in turn helps increase awareness, safety, uh, mitigation, also tolerance and the, the, uh, the intrinsic value and the benefits that they have. And I think this is particularly prevalent amongst younger populations such as school children conservation groups we know they're actively trying to educate the younger generation in the intrinsic value of predators not just financially through tourism but also for the overall health and the well-being of the ecosystem uh, there was a famous leopard in the mara north conservancy named fig simply because of her habit of resting in fig trees now it's far more engaging to talk to people especially young people to talk about fig you know, rather than referring to her as leopard, FL2MNC, isn't it? You <laughs> you're, off, you're off it again. Is. <laughs> but, it, but it's true, you know. Yeah, I, and I, I am always very, very aware of anthropomorphism, and I do consciously try to avoid it. But I think the naming of wild animals, it's something that is good. Ultimately, I believe it encourages people and that it's the right thing to do as it has a greater conservation benefit. Yeah, there are advantages and disadvantages. Uh, my my claim to fame is that I, <laughs> I somehow managed to persuade our guides, the Maasai guides, to name one of the Lemek lions that didn't have a name, Brian. I mean, you know, Brian the lion, it's going to happen. You know, yeah, he didn't have a name and I suggested Brian and it stuck for a while. And then I think Brian was killed by uh, an incoming coalition of uh, lion brothers looking to take up the pride. Uh, we don't actually know, um, but uh, Brian was never seen again. So well, right. I, I, I remember yeah. that night and we, we were photographing Shanku, who we just yeah. mentioned before, the old one eye, Shanku yeah. and Kongu. They were brothers, weren't they? They I think. were brothers, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden we, we were photographing Shanku and this other male turned up. Like, who, yeah. who, who's this other male? Yeah, it's Brian. inspired, actually, that it was, it was, it was his brother who had been <laughs> disappeared for ages and he'd reappeared on the scene that very, very night that we just happened to be photographing them. And like, well, who, who's this? Oh, his brother. Well, uh, we shall name him Brian. Yes. Brian the Lion. Brian the Lion, it has to be. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, as I say, never seen again. <laughs> so yeah, R.I.P. Brian the Lion. <laughs> who, who was, what they were 
taken over by Red Tattoo and Top Knot yes, Memory right, Serves, yeah. who who are actually interesting fact. They Red Tattoo and Top Knot were probably nephews, stroke sons, stroke grandsons, or whatever of the very very famous Scar of yeah. Marsh Pride in the National Reserve. That's and, right, covered in the Big Cat Diaries and things like that. Mm, yeah, they come from further south. Yeah. Okay, drum roll. It's time for our new feature, Alan's Amazing Wildlife Wonder. Thank you very much. So, in this feature, I will be discussing or revealing something unusual or amazing or maybe pulling apart a well-perpetuated myth. First of all, though, we need to have a caveat, and my life is full of caveats. We're always learning about wildlife and its complexities, so nothing is ever 100% set in stone. And when we say fact... What would basically mean, I think, is something that is generally accepted as being correct, but, here's the caveat, is based upon and perhaps limited by the current evidence we are aware of. And that's, you know, it's probably the same that could be said for, for a huge amount of science of which sort of biology and ecology is, is a science. That is a massive caveat. It's like one of those massive ties. <laughs> oh, no, that's a, that's a cravat. Right, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. but it's true. And But isn't that the beauty of analysing the natural world yeah. um, that we live in? And the truth is, we may never actually 100% know the truth about the behaviours and the biology. And we talked a little bit earlier on about lionesses, allosuckling and why they do it. And that's mm. based upon the best available evidence we don't actually 100% without any doubt know that that is true. That's just basically what we think based on the current evidence. Mm. You know, so many answers will actually still elude us. Okay, come on then with your cravat. <laughs> cravat, me <my> caveat. <laughs> right, so I could go into extreme nerd mode here, as uh, probably have done in the podcast so far. The hat's and coming out again. <laughs> the hat's coming out, yeah. You got your sharpie. Um, <laughs> a bit of a big whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> massive sharpie. But uh, anybody that has been to one of my recent talks or on one of our recent safaris would probably testify that I can go into uber nerd mode. But, you know, let's keep it very, very straightforward to start with. Elephant graveyards, yeah. So this is about deconstructing a well-perpetuated myth and trying to find the reason behind that. Popular culture, uh, such as films like Tarzan, if you're as old as uh, Khalil and I, you might remember Tarzan films. Particularly me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but also, more recently, films like The Lion King have embedded this myth that... Ah, uh, Sabinia. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, uh, that's, that's my alarm, isn't it? I know, it is. Oh, get yeah, it's like, every, it's like half five, five in the morning in, the morning. in Kenya. It's like, Jesus uh, Christ, Sabinia. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> so, as we were saying... Compose. Yeah, the, the Lion King, you know, in films like this popular culture, they've embedded this myth that old elephants will instinctively direct themselves to some sort of spiritual location where they're going to pass away. It isn't about denying an elephant's incredible level of emotional intelligence. That goes without saying. They, they do have this uh, incredible emotional intelligence. But the whole graveyard aspect of it is, is a bit of a myth, we believe. And it's very much on the theme of anthropomorphism, which we've just been discussing, 
this elephant graveyard concept can be considered just that it is an anthropomorphism it is it's actually implying a ritual which resonates with human customs and and that is why i actually chose this myth to uh, deconstruct as my amazing wildlife fact for the very very first story of this the best evidence we have and how this myth may have formed is that elderly elephants are more likely to end their lives in very marshy areas. Mm. So elephants are known to grow six sets of teeth throughout their lifespan, not including the tusks, which are in, but they are incisors. However, when their final set of molars wear down, they are naturally going to look for areas where food is not only plentiful, but also very, very soft to chew up and subsequently easy to digest. So these sort of marshy, wet areas of soft, lush vegetation are very attractive to elderly elephants. And as a result, elephants are more likely to die in these areas, so you're more likely to find lots of remains of elephants in such areas, and that's where the whole elephant graveyard myth is thought to come from. Actually, we've seen that a lot in the Musiara area of the um, Masai Mara, the marshy area. That, that, that's literally what it means, Musiara marsh. And you can see old elephants in there just eating the vegetation because it's easier for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my, my kids, I'm sure my kids used to hate watching The Lion King with me when we were little because every time something used to come on, well, that's not right. That's impossible. <laughs> 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 that's incorrect <laughs> yeah. I, I that would I'm, never happen in I, nature I, I'm pretty sure I ruined the Lion King for my children <laughs> I do like your cravat though <laughs> the cravat <laughs> in past episodes we've reviewed field guides uh, books like Beat About the Bush Birds of East Africa the King Don King Don that is not Kingdom King Don guide to african mammals and pathfinder you can find all of those reviews in our previous podcast episodes today's review is a bit different in that we're going to talk about the merlin bird app by cornell lab apps are often available for field guides but they don't usually have the functionality of this one and they're often a straight port of the data from the book sometimes with song and call sounds added Merlin is a bird field guide and species ID app built by Cornell University's Ornithology Department in New York. It's like a field guide, but kind of on steroids. Powered by AI and based on the eBird.org database, if you're familiar with that, and that has over a billion entries in it. It's an impressive bit of kit. I assume they must have developed the AI to be trained on all of the data in the database, which will continue to grow over time. So when you install it, you can choose various regional packs for the areas you're interested in. As soon as I installed the app, in went Europe, Britain, and Ireland pack, as well as a few others. There are downloadable packs, but they're all free, as is the entire app. It's worth noting that there are that there are no ads in this app, so it's truly free without a catch. It's a it's a non profit endeavor. It's it's very unusual and it yeah. it's absolutely epic and it really adds to the value of this app and what it's actually designed to 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 do. Absolutely. Yeah. It sort of feels like it's an extension of their research in a yeah. sort of pure sense. Uh, you know, they're not well, maybe they are I don't know, perhaps they are making money off it somehow, but it doesn't feel like that. 
Typically, halfway through installing the first pack, my Wi-Fi packed up and went on holiday for about an hour. But I got there in the end. And the app's available on iPhone, Android, iPad, and I was surprised to find out for Mac too. I think, however, that it's only available for Silicon Macs, i.e. the the M1, M2, M3 and so on. I think that's because those Macs can run iOS apps natively, whereas the older Intel Macs can't. As far as I can tell, you can't natively run the app on Windows, but I think you can get an Android emulator for the PC. Be warned that I know nothing about these emulations, so, you know, I'm I'm Mac-based, so I can't test that, I'm afraid. Anyway, for practical reasons, phone apps are much more useful anyway because they're portable and you can, you know, you can take them out into the field. A quick note on the packs. <laughs> I'm not quite clear on whether there's an, a, some kind of overlap between them. So, for example, there's a Europe pack, a Britain and Ireland pack, a Western Europe pack, a Western Palearctic pack, as well as a couple of other Europe area ones. They're all sort of 600, 700 megabytes in size. So um, that suggests to me that that the more specific packs have more information in them and perhaps more species than the broader packs. So I ended up installing all of them in my local region. Just, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) As you were, continue. (laughs) It's not just Europe, though, of course. There's a pack for each... <laughs> I can hear you pouring that beer. <laughs> it's not just Europe, though. There's a pack for each part of the globe, including multiple US regions, even Antarctica, Australia, Central America, oh, everywhere, China, all sorts of things. I, I added Kenya, uh, the Horn of Africa, South Africa, Botswana and Zimbabwe. Be aware, though, they, they, they do add up in size, and I'm several gigabytes down on my phone now, so be aware of that if you're running out of space. Once you download these packs to your device, you'll be able to use them offline without an internet connection. That's crucial if you're out and about somewhere with no phone signal or Wi-Fi. After that's all out of the way, the main screen of the app is the Identify menu. From here, you can identify birds you've seen in one of three ways. Photos, a step-by-step ID method, and sound ID. I've seen the first two in other apps before, but I've never seen an option that identifies the sound of a bird by actually listening with the microphone. That's definitely not something a book can do for you. I'm not sure if Sound ID is unique to the Merlin app, but I I couldn't find any reference to other apps of doing this. Perhaps there are, but I, I didn't see them. Anyway, it's a bit of a funny time to try and test this because pretty much nothing is going on. I'm here in Newcastle, northeast England in December, and yeah, maybe there's some robins singing in the garden, but there's there's pretty much nothing Not going today, on. There isn't, no, definitely. There's no, absolutely nothing out there other than rain. It's hammering down, and it's... <laughs> Grey and horrible. Yeah, miserable. That pretty much describes the UK in winter. Actually, that's kind of the UK any time of year. But anyway, I did, however, throw at it some pre-recorded bird sounds from my computer because I thought that's probably the only way I'm going to be able to do this. And I was very impressed that it got the following correct within seconds, um, even with some background noise present. So house sparrow, European robin, rooks, lapwings, wrens, Canada geese. Uh, However, it did struggle for some reason. I don't really know why, but it struggled with starlings, bean geese, uh, snow geese. It also had trouble where there were lots of birds singing at once, which I suppose is fair enough. I think I think we've got to remember this is a a, a sort of an ongoing development. Yeah, it feels like it's know, work in progress. And actually, and, and you can actually, when when you're identifying a species, uh, be it visually, 
by imagery or be it audibly. You can actually feed back to the authors of the app, can't you? To see, yes. Did, I, did we get this correct? Did that's, we not get this correct? That's a key that's, that's, part, actually. That's yeah. very important. Yeah, it? and I, I think that's it's a nice way that the app has been built is that you can feed back to say, well, actually, that's that's not what I was looking for at all. It was such and such. And Absolutely. You can do that feedback. So I then moved on to Kenya's birds. For some reason, it couldn't separate babblers and ring-neck doves when they were singing together. But in fact, when I tried the, the just uh, a ring-neck dove on its own, the classic work harder, drink lager bird of Africa, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. at first it, it just didn't pick it up at all. And then, <laughs> bizarrely, it thought it was a Eurasian blackbird. It also didn't recognize an African fish eagle, thinking it was a lesser blackback gull. I mean, I suppose part of the call sounds similar to a lesser blackback gull, but the, the main call is pretty unique, I would have thought. Um, maybe it was thinking, well, what's the likelihood of an African fish eagle in Newcastle in December? Zero. <laughs> so <laughs> possibly, you know, yeah. maybe there's some localization going on. This is never probably, say never. This, but the AI is probably <laughs> thinking, you know, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's right, because it does ask you where about it. Yes. It does respond to geographical tendencies. Yes. You, you can also, if you've got previous recordings of sounds, which is quite useful, you can record and then ask it to analyse them later. So I would kind of expect it to be able to allow sounds from anywhere in the world, which is good, but I, I don't know what happened this time. But I think it, it's impressive when it works. I think, as we said earlier, I think this is a work in progress. It's mm. it's impressive when it does work. It's constantly learning. It's evaluating yeah. and learning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on to the photo ID, you can either take a picture with your phone or, more usefully, show it an image from your photos. So I threw the following bird shots at it. White-fronted bee-eater, Eurasian sparrowhawk, both flying and eating at a kill, red-legged honeycreeper, um, that one was from Costa Rica, uh, puffin, black-legged kittiwake, superb starling from Kenya, long-billed hermit hummingbird, again from Costa Rica, keel-billed toucan. You can see where I've got some of these images from, from a trip a while ago I did to Costa Rica, which was amazing, by the way. White-necked Jacobin hummingbird. What about a brown trembler? A brown trembler, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's a disco leg bird. And basically, it got all of those right, which I was incredibly impressed with. It even correctly ID'd a, a very, very low res snap of a mute swan I've got from like a really old scanned photo of uh, me on a barge somewhere. And this is like this this mute swan is a tiny, tiny part of the image, and it still got it. I was really impressed that it got a martial eagle. This is a really impressive bird from Africa. But I think the, it's one of the largest species in Africa. Yeah. Largest species of eagle. In, yeah, in, the, the, in the African the, continent. Yeah, very, very impressive eagle. Yeah, but the, 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 yeah. the thing I particularly liked about this was that it, it got it straight away from a picture of a juvenile, not an adult. Right. You know, and that's wow. you know, wow. I was like really impressed that it, it's it like, yeah, that's that's a, a martial eagle. You know, mm -hmm. great. Um, similarly, with an Arctic tern, it managed to get the fact that it was an Arctic tern, even though there was an Arctic tern chick right in front of the main bird. So, you know, it's pretty clever. 
It did, however, think of a separate photo of an Arctic tern. Chick was a sandwich tern, but I mean that's really close and a very good guess. Yeah, I suppose while while adults are, you know, they they grow and into adulthood and look very different. Yeah. the chicks are very, very, very similar. Yeah, I was really impressed that you know just from a, a photo of a chick, it managed to get yeah. that it was a tern, even yeah, you know, absolutely. Never, never mind you know very close to yeah. a, an Arctic or a, a, a sandwich tern. Um, when I gave it a mango hummingbird, uh, it wasn't sure which type of hummingbird I'd given it, but it gave me five possibilities. So, you know, all in all, the photo ID was very accurate. And even when it wasn't sure, it gave me some very sensible alternatives to choose between, which, which allowed me to then go on and say, oh, yeah, that was the one I saw. The final option is to step through a series of questions, which narrows down the ID. You start with where you saw the bird, then you tell it when you saw it, roughly what size it was, perhaps in comparison to some standard-sized birds. So so in the UK, it might be like a robin or a blackbird or a, a goose or something like that. So it, it, it allows you to sort of refine that. And then it's, you know, was it flying or in trees or wading? It then gives you a list of possible birds with photos and a short description. I had a bit of a false start with this one. I wanted to see if I could find a lilac-breasted roller, and I put in blue, grey, and white as the main colours, because there wasn't a pink or lilac option. It didn't list the roller, so I went back and chose blue and red, and it finally picked it up. So you, you might have to think slightly laterally, but you'll get there in the end. I think the more more people use it, yeah. and the more people feed back into it and use the, the interactive you know, AI element of it, yeah. the, the more it will improve. I think it needs that kind of... Uh, that user interaction to improve. Yeah. And if, if memory serves, if you use it and it it, it asks you, kind of, did we get this right? You mm -hmm. can feed that back. And I think the more people do that, the more it will improve. Yes, yeah. I've, I've got something to say yeah. about that just towards the end, actually, but I'll, I'll get to that. Yeah, cool. I then tried a red-legged honeycreeper, which is a Costa Rican bird, and it didn't ID it, even though I'd put Costa Rica as the place I'd seen it. I tried installing the Costa Rica pack because I didn't have that already installed, and it came up with quite a lot of similar birds. Unfortunately, not the red-legged honeycreeper. Oh, well. Next was a fiscal shrike, which it did find, the northern fiscal. But when I then went to do a text search for shrike, the northern fiscal shrike didn't appear because the list didn't have shrike in the name, even though it is a shrike. Undoubtedly, though, when using the step-by-step -step ID search, the app does give you a list of really useful candidates. Coming away from the Identify menu, you can do a search using the Explore tab. Uh, and this is a useful filtered search where you can tell it the area you're looking at and the date range. It then gives you a list including images and a graphic showing when it's likely to be present within that date range. The simple idea of having an image of the bird as well as the name in the search results sounds, <laughs> it sounds really obvious, but it's not actually a feature of all searchable apps. They often just give you the name and then you have to click on that name to see an image and say, oh, yeah, that's the bird I saw. Once you've found the bird you're looking for, the app has a short description, a distribution map and call sounds. I was delighted to hear the ring-necked dove telling me to drink lager, even though the app hadn't picked that up through the sound ID. So it was in there. Work harder, drink lager. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the soundtrack to every every Southern Africa or even, well, East Africa, Sub-Saharan. That's right. Everywhere. Yeah, it's a very successful bird. 
Perhaps for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> the last part of the app is a listing function where you can keep a log of all your sightings. Now, this isn't something I generally do, and I didn't get a chance to check it out, but I know it's an important feature for a lot of people. I might try this in Kenya next year because sometimes our Maasai friends will tell you what a tricky species is, and it really would be worth noting down that at that time so I could match it up with photos later. That's often the thing. You're in the moment. Uh, you find out what a bird is and you instantly forget it, but you've got a photo of it later to try and match up. My main use for this app is to ID photos that I've taken uh, earlier on, particularly when they're as exotic as some of the African species. I know a lot of the African birds from uh, years of travel there, but there are so many hundreds of them, it's impossible to remember them all. Definitely. Overall, the, the app is it's not foolproof, but, you know, as I found out with the sound ID and the step-by-step thing, but it is extremely useful. Yeah, and we have to remember that this app is a learning tool that is in constant evaluation, mm. and it's going to pick up things. The artificial intelligence is a thing. It's going to look at photographs. It's going to pick up sounds. It's going to try and differentiate between background sounds and what's, you know, try and differentiate between foreground and background. There's a lot of complexities mm. in, in these sort of habitats. So it's something that's a, it's a constantly... It's a constant it's evolving, isn't it's, it? It's evolving. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the right word. It's, it's an evolving tool. I think it potentially, I mean, it's very good at the moment, I think, but mm. it's potentially incredibly good if it gets a lot of user feedback yeah. visually and in terms of the sound as well. I think what I find most impressive and useful about it is the, the ability to sort of approach an idea of a bird from several different angles. So you might try the sound ID or the photo ID or or just doing a search. And there's lots of different ways of approaching, it's like, well, what is this bird from these characteristics or whatever? If I had to sort of put it in a nutshell, it gives you lots of different ways of finding out what the bird actually was. And once you find it, you've got all the information at hand. There are a few niggles in the app uh, that I found, like um, once it's correctly ID'd a bird, it comes up with a that's my bird button, which, you know, once you find it, you think, right, great, I'll, I'll provide my feedback. Unfortunately, certainly on the version I had anyway, when you click on this, it, it just does nothing, which was a shame. It's like really unsatisfying. It's like, yes, you got my bird. Click nothing, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. because I think con- you know this. This this, is, this goes back to the feedback thing, confirming the idea, or, or saying what what it should have found. It's like, well, I know it should have been such and such, and this is maybe how you should learn. That's an important part of the whole feedback for the learning of it. And I don't know whether that was just the version I had, but it, it just didn't work, which was a shame. Also, <laughs> the app crashed when I tried to change the app language locality from English US to English UK, which was a bit annoying. So I've thrown some difficult tests at the app. The ability to download offline packs for different regions of the world and to use various ways of IDing species is tremendously useful. The species accounts 
maybe aren't as comprehensive as some paid apps or books. And I've read that not every single bird is listed for each region. I compared a Marshall Eagle species account with photos and illustrations in the app with Birds of East Africa by Stevenson Fanshawe, one of the books we've reviewed in a previous episode, which which is excellent, by the way. It is. Um, There was more detail in the latter, in the book, Birds of East Africa, and it had clear illustrations instead of the photos which are in the Merlin app. But that that doesn't have this AI aspect of it, does it? It's kind of search and identify and listen to the sounds and identify. It doesn't have that AI element to it. No, yeah, yeah. Again, I go back to the idea that this app, I mean, it's free. We've got to remember that. Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, Is such a good way of approaching, well, I don't know what this bird is. Tell me what this bird is. And, And it really does a very, very good job of that from lots of different angles. I think I would say that the photos is the most useful side Mm. of it. As long as they're decent photos, which they are in the Merlin uh, accounts that are browsed through, just to compare that with the illustrations, sometimes you want really well-drawn illustrations like in the Birds of East Africa. And that's kind of the classical, if you imagine a a book with what they call plates, um, that's sort of an old-fashioned word for the pages which have photos on them. And they're sort of referenced throughout the text in traditional books, if you like. Illustrations, I think, are, are really good for picking out like the differences between species. If you're not really sure between one species and something that's quite similar, having an illustration can be really, really useful. And the Merlin app doesn't have that. But what I've found in general is that the photos in there are very, very good. And I didn't really find that as a problem. I used to think that having the illustrations was really important because it might show, say, I don't know, the uh, geeky details like the primaries would be different colours or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, I, I think the Merlin app has a, a, a really good range of very high-quality photos, which is quite surprising. I mean, particularly, again, since it's, it's free. In an ideal world, I think I would like to have the Merlin app plus one of the more detailed books or apps like Birds of East Africa, for example. And then if you have both of them, then that's fantastic. Obviously, it depends where you are in the world as to whether you have access to a detailed field guide as well as Merlin. But Merlin will get you most of the way in most cases. All in all, to wrap things up, the Merlin app is an excellent free tool. And as far as I've tested, it's very comprehensive and it's enough for most uses. Very much recommended. I absolutely agree. I used this app for the first time this year when I was in South Africa and Botswana. One of our fantastic guests, Derek, who is also coming to Kenya with us in July, he actually put me onto it. Derek is another very, very good photographer, it has to be said, thoroughly top bloke too. Thank you, Derek. And I'm looking forward to working with him again in the Maasai Mara, and I'm sure you, Khalil, will get on with him like a house on fire. I'm really looking uh, forward to meeting him. He's a good boy. Well, Annette, Derek, Derek, Dawn, fantastic. It's, yeah. it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. But anyway, I'd, I had heard of this app, but I never actually used it. And we were chilling in Sorolo Camp in Botswana and Tule Block between drives. And there were so many great go-away birds. Um, up, yeah, exactly. Up, up, up in the trees around the camp. And I was I was messing around with this this Merlin bird app after Derek recommended it. So I thought I would I would actually test it with those. Now, for the young 
initiated for those that don't know the go away bird is is a super example of onomatopoeia um so it's, it's effectively named after its own call go away that's go what it away. is go away yeah it's, it's exactly right but yeah apps on smartphones very very useful it's about using technology getting the benefits from it and we've mentioned this before as much as we both value good old-fashioned books we also both have various bird and mammal id guides as apps on our smartphones they're incredibly convenient as an alternative to large and heavy books when we're traveling and working in the field remember every inch and gram i think i mentioned that before about cameras it's very precious in camera bags and in luggage So, I think that's about enough for episode six. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it, and please do get in touch with us with any questions and comments. We'd love to hear from you, as always. You can do that via the website or by email at info at africanphotographysafaris.com, via Instagram or via Facebook, or Khalil Zaib Facebook, or Alan Hewitt Facebook, or Instagram, whatever. We've got loads of uh, social media channels. We're all socialed up is what you're trying we, to say. We are, yeah. If you've put up with us this far, you might be interested in coming on Photo Safari with us in 2024. The dates are 26th of August till the 2nd of September 2024 for the first trip. We also have a second week running straight after the first one, and that's between the 2nd and the 9th of September 2024 again. And for the first time, we're also running an extension on the first trip for an additional four days. That's for people who don't want to stay the full second week, but you get an extra four days. We've already got some guests on our first trip staying us for the full 11 days, which is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can find details of these trips on africanphotographysafaris.com. Also, some of the trips we are leading alongside our lovely friends and partners, Penda Photo Tours. Going forward with the podcast in episode seven, we will be talking about choosing a safari for the photographer. There's, there's actually quite a lot to consider, probably a lot more than many people will realise, and it will be rather enlightening, I hope. I'll have an sure utterly, <laughs> I will have another utterly amazing wildlife wonder. It won't be elephants in graveyards. <laughs> there will be some sort of book or app review. It's probably fair to say we'll talk about beer. Uh, <laughs> and at some point, some questions to the podcast. One in particular about blood, guts and gore. We've already received that question. We will be covering it in episode seven. And we'll also be talking about backups. Backups, yeah, it's a bit of a dry subject, but it's actually super important and it's something we absolutely stress to our guests and it does deserve a space on what is probably the best photography safari podcast around at the moment. So... If you're curious, though, about the music that we've been using in this podcast, my good friend sitting on my right-hand side now, Khalil, he wrote it after uh, recording the local Maasai villagers singing and dancing. Somebody's asked about the music, so there you go. That's another little bit of a question answered. Can you believe that was seven years ago that we mad. recorded that? Absolutely mad. It's like, oh, yeah, it was a fantastic day. Yeah. I, I remember one of my cameras failed because it was so hot. <laughs> um, but luckily I had a second one going and you can see the villagers singing and dancing on the video we did at the time. Yeah. 
uh, featuring that track. Uh, we'll put a link up to the uh, to that on the podcast for episode six. Definitely. So I'll tell you what, though. See if you can spot us in the video. There's a prize. There isn't a prize. There's <laughs> no prize. But until then, <laughs> that's enough from us now. Remember, if you want to come on one of these fantastic African Photography Safaris, we're at africanphotographysafaris.com. So bye for now. Indeed. Ta-ta. It's a wrap! Ah, ah. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs>